Hi, I'm Adrian Potter. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. For most of my life, I've been curious about why people do the things they do, especially people that create for a living. In these episodes, I'm going to talk to people that design and make the most amazing things. I'm going to ask them how and why they do the things they do. Please join me on this adventure into a creative life. Folks, Adrian here again. Welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Really appreciate you listening. As always, I can't do it without you. Loving all the feedback too. Today on the show, Don Morrison, who's a really, really awesome chap. So modest and so incredibly talented. He's made 15 albums of his own music and... Don makes the most extraordinary resonator guitars out of old corrugated iron that he finds. And some of these instruments have got very interesting stories. And they are beautiful, incredible little sculptures. And uh, awesome to play too. Oh, just before we get started, I need to remind you that Don's also an author. He's got a book called This Could Be Big. Check it out. Don Morrison, welcome to the Designer Maker Revolution. Thanks very much, Adrian. If you're at a party and someone asks you what you do for a living, what do you say? Uh, I just usually say I make guitars, yeah. Do you? Not a musician? Well, don't make a living out of it. That's only about one, one third of my income comes from playing music, you know. Mm. And, and if I really looked into it closely, the expenses would, you know, really limit that as well. You know? <laughs> Did you ever make a living from music? Oh, yeah, way back in my first band when we were touring and that, we did like 250 gigs a year mm. and so we didn't have time to do anything else and we made about $20 more than the dole each you know, for those two years, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty much of a bonus for musicians. Yeah, yeah that's right, you know. When you look at the, uh, the gross amount of money that we earned, it wasn't too bad, but then you've got to take out the agent, the manager. We had two road crew because... You know, they had to drive all over the place and get there. At, and if we are playing every night of the week, we couldn't set up and take down the gear mm, and all that. Mm. So, yeah, there was a lot of expenses to come out of it. And then accommodation when we were interstate. So what was the band called? Uh, the Bodgies. Yeah. Yeah, we started in uh, 79, late 79, and then played around Adelaide a lot. Then in about 1981, we moved to Melbourne to live and uh, and about midway through 82, we had enough and quit. <laughs> we split up, yeah. <laughs> but we, we still did a lot of gigs after that. We went to America actually in 86, I think, Did played over there, but we haven't done anything for a few years now. What's the bodgies mean? Oh, well, in the old days, in the 50s, there were the bodgies and the widgies and they were people that used to wear ripple sole shoes and that. And I can remember my grandmother staying with us and on a Friday night, we used to have fish and chips because we were Catholics, mm. see, and uh, I'd go down to the fish shop to get them. And my grandma said to me, Donnie, don't you talk to the bodgies in that fish shop, you know. Because <laughs> there's this place used to play billiards next door. So, yeah, it always knew about bodgies. But the reason we called the bodgies the bodgies was because we didn't have a name and we did this little gig and we just had rubbish equipment, which we used all the time. 
And some bloke said, geez, you blokes got some bodgy equipment. So mm. that's where we got the idea from. Did you ever get good gear? Uh, yes, we got better gear, but uh, it was still, you know, compared to other musicians, it mm. was... Uh, well, towards the end, no, we had proper, you know, re- really good guitars and that. Although the Maiton Alva that I used almost all the time... When I went to Melbourne first, I took it to Mayton Factory, thinking mm. they would like to see this historic old thing. And the bloke said, um, gee, mate, our blokes are uh, craftsmen. I couldn't ask them to work on that. Because <laughs> so, uh, we were playing every night of the week and touring, we had to have reliable equipment. So, yeah, yeah we eventually got some decent stuff. Yeah. What's your favourite guitar of all time? Oh... I know, even though I make guitars, I'm not really a guitar nut, but no. I just think this, um, I got a, an Eastern European copy of a Gretsch Country Gentleman yeah, really. back in the 70s. I got it from Laurie Treadray's pawn shop in the, near the market there. And it's a really well-made guitar and really good, and I used yeah. that for a lot. And I've, we did a, a number of gigs with Bo Diddley, and uh, he did signed you? the headstock, yeah, by the man, Bo Diddley, 1981, <laughs> yeah. yeah. right. So I've still got that. That's, that's probably my favourite. Well, you know, the one I'm attached to. Although some of the guitars I've made now, I've, I wouldn't sell those. Like there's one that I made from my um, mum's house in Broken Hill. Is that right? Yeah, and I went back there a few years ago and it's empty and abandoned, falling mm. down. So I, I grabbed a, a few bits and pieces. A couple of sheets of tin. Yeah, that's it back there, you know, yeah. and I got uh, the, the next couple of laminated skirting boards. Yeah, right. And then the other one that I use all the time is my dad used to live up in Perponda for a while, which is in the Murray Mallee. You know, there's nothing there yeah. now. And uh, I went back there and, yeah, got a couple of sheets of tin. I got a fence post out of the, ra- the railway line that's no longer existing there. That's it. And uh, I built that. So I sort of... It's sort of like the stories around the guitars, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's um, as soon as I pick up any guitar, I sort of immediately adapt to it, you know, rather than change the guitar to suit me. Mm. Mm. I think I've got used to it because the you know history of playing crappy guitars, <laughs> just have to make them do make do, you know. Yeah. yeah. Did, did you grow up in Broken Hill? No, no. Mum was from Broken Hill, and uh, they got mum and dad got married up there. Dad met her where he was working in the mines. Mm. Went up there from here. But no, I was born back in Adelaide, and so I just used to go back there for holidays and things, you know, when I was yeah. a kid, stayed up there for a few weeks at a time every now and then. Yeah, and your mum and dad, working class by the sound of it? Yeah, yeah, dad was a maintenance fitter in the factory. Mm. He used to work in British tube mills, fitter and turner. And mum, because we had seven kids, she couldn't work anyway, you know, she was flat out. Yeah, she, she worked harder than dad, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> trying to, you know keep things together at home yeah yeah and the, you had a couple of brothers in your band yeah too. the bodgies was um brian was the drummer and jeff was the other guitar player yeah, yeah and my younger brother matt who was only about 10 at the time we were playing he now lives in sydney and has made a living out of playing music for the last 20 or 30 years is that right yeah he's, he plays drums in some bands and guitar in others so. yeah right yeah that's pretty good. Well yeah. done. Well done, Matt. Yeah, it's sort of funny because nobody in our family played any instruments. We weren't musical at all, you know. You are now. Yeah, yeah. I realise now I was always interested in music, even though it wasn't on the horizon that I might ever play an instrument or anything, you know. What was the first instrument you picked up? Uh, the harmonica. Yeah, yeah. Because I, um, I was at Nord High 
And uh, I'd just gone there from, used to go to Maris Brothers, which I won't bore you with. <laughs> but, uh, no, we can tell, you can tell some stories if you like. Uh, yeah. And anyway, uh, I said to Dad, I'm not going back there, you know. No. So for year 11, I think it was, yeah, fourth year, uh-huh. I went up to Nord High, which is really close to home, you know, and yeah. there was a guy called Greg Baker. He was in the class and uh, between lessons when the teachers had gone, he pulled out this harmonica and played it. It sounded really good and I thought, oh, you can play a tune on that. So I went down to Kmart and, and bought one because they had all that stuff there then. Greg went on, he, he became quite f- well-known around Adelaide playing in mm. blues bands and that. Mm. He lives up in Brisbane now. But, uh, yeah, he, he was responsible for getting me started. So mm. I played harmonica for a while. And blues. Yeah, yeah, Greg was, he was really, like, strict. He wouldn't play anything other than blues, you know, it has to be blues. <clears throat> so that's what I got my start in, yeah, playing. We, we, we made a band uh, with some other blokes from Nord High. We were Mecca Powerhouse 5. It was a jug band, you know, yeah, yeah. with the tub bass and everything. Yeah. We played a few gigs around and that. We started, the first name we had was Pus Supernostral and the Bubonic Plague. Oh, my God. <laughs> but it was a bit hard to spell, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. so we uh, changed it to Mecca Powerhouse 5, yeah. So harmonica and guitar. How did you end up, talk, talk about how you got into making that. Oh, well, because I wanted a, a metal-bodied guitar, you know, a resonator guitar, they're called, because that's... Yeah. Blues were not played on, you know, all the old style blues guys used to play on them because in the early days before amplification, they were much louder than a normal guitar. So when they played in the noisy juke joints and that, they'd have Mm. this guitar and they could get a bit of sound out of it. And I really wanted one back, you know, 25 years ago. You couldn't get them in Australia. They weren't, they stopped being made about the wartime, Mm. the metal ones, and because uh, then the electric guitar came in. And uh, so I just sort of scratched around, you know, got some metal off a car door and, you know, hit it with a hammer and things. And, yeah, it took, took quite a while, but, uh, you know, eventually made one. Yeah. They put some strings on it and, were, you know, then I made a better one and a better one and then I sold one to a mate, you know. So yeah. How did you figure it out? Because there's a bit of technology going on, isn't there? Yeah, well, Dad was a metal worker, you know, so I used to watch him as a kid. I remember standing in the shed you know and he's, he said I'm going to turn the welder on now so look away you know so mm. he didn't want me to learn anything like that because he thought it was a gateway to poverty and he was right but uh, <laughs> you know but I just learned by watching him about metal and I learned that if you tried hard enough and you put enough effort into doing something you could mm. do it. it didn't really matter you know mm. so I just started I read a few things about panel beating you know and then Used to, I remember I used to lie in bed and wake up in the morning with, obviously my brain had been working overnight, the subconscious, with a plan to do this, try that. and Yeah, trial and error. Yeah. Because there are no books and no anything about how to make metal body guitars. You know, there's nothing. No. And there isn't. No. Are they now? Maybe you could write it. Well, it's one of my plans, actually, to when I'm totally sick of making guitars and don't want to make another one, I'll make a video or a book about that's how it. to do it, you know. So. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, pass, the, pass your learning down. Yeah, yeah. It's one way or the other, I'll document how to do it or something. Yeah, so the, the first resonated guitars were built in America by some brothers, yeah. Yeah, the Dopera brothers. They, they came out from Czechoslovakia and they, he was a violin maker and stuff. Mm. They followed a bit on the banjo principle with the stick going through the neck that goes 
right through and the um the resonating uh, yeah, the drum as yeah. the resonator yeah and the, he, the same year that he invented them the loudspeaker was invented so he got the idea for the cone inside the guitar from the loudspeaker and he spun it out of aluminium thin aluminium mm. that made the sound so a resonator guitar is like a a fancy speaker box really you know there's mm. a speaker in it mechanically operated not electronically which the strings vibrate you know and make mm. the sound and then the uh the body is like the speaker cabinet the mm. bass will come out of where the f holes are and the treble comes out from around where the cone is around mm. around the bridge and the ones we're looking at right now are fully metal except for the neck yeah. which is made out of timber yep yeah, and there are, but you can get resonator guitars that are wooden. Yeah, yeah, Dobros. Back when I started making them, you could still get Dobros, which were wooden resonator guitars, mm. and and they were used mainly for country and western. You know mm. that slide country yeah. and western sound, but the metal sound was a, had more impact, less sustain than that, but it was more a bluesy sound. You know, mm. that's what I wanted. Really percussive. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. 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 So, and you have written a book too. Oh, yeah, yeah. And every now and then, every 10 years or so, I think I'm going to quit playing music, you know. So <laughs> the last time I was thinking of that, oh, I'll write the story because I'd tell a few yarns about our old, you know, playing mm. and people said, you should write a book, Don, you know. So I gave it a try and, uh, yeah, it turned out to be really worthwhile. I wrote the book and uh, I sold out of them. Um, took a long time, but, you know, I'd sell them at gigs and, Mm. Sold out of the first print, so just recently I've actually updated it and, you know, put out a new edition. I had, a, you know, a few book launches lined up. I had one at, um, lined up at Readings in Carlton in Melbourne, the f- most famous bookshop. It's I was going to awesome launch my bookshop. book there, yeah. you know. I didn't care if nobody came just to be able to say I launched my book at Readings. Yeah. But this bloody COVID thing yeah. cancelled it. So yeah. How's COVID treating you? Oh, no, not that well. It hasn't affected my guitar making. You know, people are still ordering guitars, but for, for quite a while, I just lost the enthusiasm to do them, make them. Yeah, right. So I'd, and um, of course, with no gigs, no. I didn't realise how much I, you know, this year I'd planned to really try and get a foothold in Melbourne. I'd been playing there the last few years, you know, three or four times a year I'd go over. And this year I decided, I'm right, I knuckled down and I applied for hundreds of festivals. I um, lined up some really good gigs in Melbourne and one by one the festivals have cancelled. Yeah, they dropped they, out. They can't go to Melbourne now for who knows. I don't think you'd want to be in Melbourne right now. No, that's right. I was yeah. talking to a mate living there and, yeah, he was pretty down. Yeah. So, yeah, compared to the Melbourne people, I haven't got it too bad, but it did, yeah. you know, really make me realise how much I enjoyed and needed to play music live, you know, yeah, to people. Yeah. So, and do you play solo? I play solo and I play in a band. I've got a band called Raging Thirst with um, my two sons, Jake and Eddie. Jake's <laughs> a really good guitar player and yeah. Eddie's a fantastic upright bass player. Yeah, okay. And got Andy Prisgonski on drums. Who's, I've played in bands with Andy for, I don't know, 20 years, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, we do some live gigs, and when I go interstate and that, I go solo because it's just so much easier to organise. I don't have to worry about lining up accommodation for everybody, mm. and it's much more affordable for everybody. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't mind playing by myself, yeah. Yeah. How do you go about selling your guitars? 
Well, I was pretty lucky at, right at the beginning of when the internet started. That's when I started making guitars, and I had a mate who was a bit of a whiz at making websites. He used to run a, a course and how to do it, and he said, why don't we make a website for your guitars? Oh, all right. It was like foreign territory for me. But then I started getting lots of inquiries, you know, by email from um, America because the Aussie dolly was about 55 cents, you know, so mm. if I sold a guitar for $2,000, it would only cost them 1200 or 1100 and I still got my 2000 you know. Mm. And... Uh, yeah, so that's how it usually starts. Just people saw the website. Now, because there's quite a few of them about, they might see somebody playing one live or something, so that's a little bit... Yeah, just usually I don't put them in shops because I can't build them fast enough for that, but so I just get an order. Somebody rings up or emails me and say, I want to buy one, and then it takes about, you know, maybe 12 weeks from start to... I can do one in a week, but there's usually other stuff I have to get out of the way first. So, you know, up to 12 weeks and then finish it and send it off. That's not too bad, like a turnaround time. No, my guitars are much faster to make than wooden, you know, acoustic yeah. guitars. I made a few acoustic guitars, wooden ones. But there's lots of waiting around for the glue to dry and um, mm. putting bits of wood through machines for mm. endless run-throughs of the, the thickness sander and so forth. Mm. And they're very slow to make those. But I can sort. I remember the first body I sold it up. It took me three weeks. <laughs> now I can do it in about three hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the the metal, and you don't have to treat the metal in any way. It is what it is, and that's what you use. You know, yeah, you get the yeah. right stuff at the beginning, yeah. so you don't have to get thickness it and soundboard and blah blah. Mm. blah you know, I've seen some of your guitars, and they've got um, like stamps of Lysart. Yeah, uh, really old school corrugated iron yeah well most of that stuff i can't use the modern material because it's too brittle mm. and you can't flatten it out you know yep. so the old stuff and um most of the stuff i use is pre-1920 you know like uh lysa well we only started making corrugated iron here in the 20s so not when i say pre-20s that's not right but uh it gets too hard around the mid 50s so right. it's all before then and a lot of the stamps I've got, the, I've got a supply of corrugated iron now from Adams Mars factory. It's an English factory between 1880 and 1900, you know, and it's, uh, yeah, so it's all very old and the older it is, the better it is for making guitars. And does it sound any different? No. And if it does sound different, there, is, there are ways I can go about with the bracing and stuff of making it sound, yeah. you know. And do you make all your resonator, like the, the loudspeaker part of it? No, no, I get them from America. There's a, a, a style of guitar called the tricone mm. that's got three small cones in it. Mm. And a friend of mine, Max, used to make the cones for those. So, and they were a bit different from the ones you could buy. And they were really good. But unfortunately, Max passed away 18 months ago, or so, 18 months ago. And so now I have to buy them as well. So to, to make cones, I could, you know, we could do it, but I'd have to invest a fair bit of money in the... In the spinning wise. Yeah, you need a lathe and then you need a, a fancy mould and that sort of mm. thing. And these cones that I can buy are as good as anything you can, you know, mm. I could make, so... Yeah, yeah, for sure. And is there competition in the States from other makers? Not really. There's only a few uh, sort of small makers like me there's big factories you know like 
tons of them are made in Korea and yeah, know, right. Asia. And then there's the National Resophonic Company in America. They're in California. This isn't are they the National Guitars from. Yeah, well, they got the name. They, yeah, it's just a brand. Yeah, they bought yeah. the name from. I think they had some little connection with the, the oldest Dopera boy, yeah. and um, yeah, they're, they're quite a big operation. They make them. There was a fellow, Beaton, in uh, Newcastle somewhere. He was making them for a while, but I don't think he's doing it anymore. Yeah, so. right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And what about the next? Do you make them? Yeah, make the next. When I started, I used to get Brian West in Fretco in Gilbert Street there. Yeah. He would make necks. But, yeah, I make the necks now. I've been doing that for the last 10 years or so. And I've learnt a lot, actually, using wood that other luthiers would say, you can't use that, that's no good, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I realised the only reason they use, like, mahogany and all those sort of woods is because they're much easier to work than... Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, you know. Yeah, they don't have any tone uh, input or anything. It's just... It's a lot easier to work. They don't split and there's... Yeah, well, I mean, there's a heap of people out there that do argue about the tone of oh, a neck that... Yeah, I know. Maybe not... A, you wouldn't probably hear it in a resonated guitar. I don't really know. No. No, I know. That's right. Yeah. I'm sure the wood... Actually, for back and sides, that's important for the sound. Totally. But, mm. but for the neck, you know... I, Look, there'd be people out there. I'm sure. They, yeah, I know. I've heard it. Yeah, I've heard it, but... Given my experience of doing it, you know, yeah. using the different woods, I, I just, I can't see it myself. So now you're using mahogany exclusively because it's so easy. <laughs> no, I use, actually, I try to use Australian timbers yeah, because um, the Americans, for instance, think it's exotic and the Europeans, you know. Okay. I've even used cypress pine. Yeah. I got the idea for that because that, when I built the guitar from Perponda, the fence post was a huge fence post, and that was cypress pine. And by the time I got all the rotten wood out, there was just enough in there for a neck. I said, I didn't care what it sounded like or how it was, I'm going to use it because mm. it comes from the right place. Mm. And it turned out really good, beautiful feel on it on the neck. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, that guitar's seven or eight years old now, and it's still functioning perfectly. So Yeah. yeah. Cypress has got a lot of knots in it, though, eh? Yeah, that's right. You've got to get the right bit. You yeah, know, yeah. But, but then in the end, I've started using, it doesn't make any difference with the knots. If they don't fall out, you know, I glue them in sort of thing, smooth it up, and uh, it, it worked fine, you know. Yeah. That's another thing I've learned. There's wood and there's wood. You know, you can get, the piece of wood can be totally different, even though it's the same, mm. the same brand, you know. Oh, absolutely, it yeah. can. You can get even mahogany, it can be super heavy. Or yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. It's all different bits, so sort of pick it up and think, hmm, yeah, okay, we'll use that, or no, I won't use that. <laughs> There'd be losers out there turning in their cars. I know, that's right. <laughs> There's no way you can use oh, it's fine. Yeah, sometimes when I go to festivals, guitar festivals, you know, there's a whole room full of luthiers and they've got all this talk about what wood they use and mm. I'll say, oh, yeah, that one's cypress pine, that one's uh, laminated uh, western red cedar and their sort of eyes are going, ah, it's just... <laughs> But they will function all right, you know. Pretty good. So playing music with your brothers, how did that come about? Did you? Well, uh, I um, I never. I started guitar playing guitar really late, like in my twenties, you know, mm. and didn't play at all. So I started playing, and then I moved out of home, and I just after I'd started playing, and so my brothers got into that, you know, they'd sort of borrow my guitar, and then they, you know, got their own guitars and became quite accomplished, you know, both of them. Brian and Jeff play guitar. And um, 
wanted to get a band together and I was jamming with various people, you know, and it wasn't sounding any good and, you know. You weren't writing songs at all? Not really, no, no, not. I wrote a few, but not many, you know, just... So, like, mid-twenties is kind of like you must have had some epiphany or something to... Yeah, it's a long, long story, you know. What were you uh, into before that? I was playing football all the time. Were you? Sports, yeah. Okay. You know, I got to... I got a trophy for the most wickets for the Paynham Thirds as an opening bowler. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I played footy. Well, you know, we had the band in the, the, the Mecca Powerhouse Five in year 11. And then things went awry, you know, the girlfriend and split and that. And I thought, oh, bugger this, I'm going back playing football. Mm. So I went back and played footy for a few more years, went overseas, and that got me my mind opened again you know i traveled around on a motorbike and yeah, right. got lost and got broke they still ride motorbikes no no i lived in the hills for a while and i saw the death sites of too many old farts you know that uh temporary yeah. australians yeah mm. yeah i actually raced motorcycles for a while I, Did you? yeah i used to i raced against mick Doohan, the five yeah, right. times world champion yeah right and Did you I, beat him? I finished 20 meters in front of him but I was on my fourth lap and he was on his fifth. But it doesn't matter. You should just leave that. That's part right. Out. Yeah. I finished in front of Mick Doohan. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I went overseas and then uh, came back and then started playing. And like I said, I was jamming with other people. It wasn't any good. And then drummers were really hard to find. So we talked Brian. He was the only one of us that had a job at the time. He was apprentice motor mechanic. So he had enough money to buy this really basic drum kit and he turned out to be a complete natural. Yeah, right. And what we found was, we didn't realise it till later on, that because we're related or family or something, we had this very unique sense of rhythm amongst us so we could sound really tight and within somebody else playing, it would just sound really loose. So, because a lot of family bands, you know, they're known for their harmonies and stuff, you know, Mm. like beautiful family harmonies, but... We weren't that much in the harmonies, but we had a good sense of, united sense of rhythm. And so I think that would be the strongest part of the early band, yeah. So, yeah, tried it with other guys, didn't work. Then we just got together and banged around and it sounded great. And so we took it from there, you know. Mm. And writing songs, how did that start? Oh, well, for a long time, I just used to get riffs and add words, a bit like blues, you know, I just changed like my first song, um... There was a song, a famous blues song called Sweet Home Chicago. Yeah. And so I changed to Sweet Home Bendigo because <laughs> I wanted to make it sound Australian. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Have you ever lived, you haven't lived in Bendigo though? No, no, I've been it's there a lot. Too, yeah, oh, it's great. I played at the Bendigo Blues Festival mm. last year and I've been there quite a bit. And mm. uh, yeah, I love it around there. So all those, that gold country around there, oh, beautiful it's, spot. It is, it's yeah. Fun, yeah. Yeah, later on, well, Went to live in Melbourne for a long time in the 80s and uh, I used to see Paul Kelly around a bit, you know, there early and I used to think, oh, he's not much good, you know. And then um, in 87, Gossip, you know, he made the double album Gossip came out and it was full of all these songs and I thought of myself, well, he's been doing that the same crap as I have around Melbourne. I should try and write a few songs so I have to you know, give Paul Kelly a, for inspiring me to get going on it. And, yeah, so it started then. And you've yeah, written a lot of songs since, you know. Yeah. Some, uh, Do you like it? Is it a fun thing? Uh, 
it's hard work, you know, like mm-hmm. you, very rarely does a song come together just like that. You know, you get the idea and you get the melody or something and then you've got to work and work to get all the lyrics to fit, you know, to mm-hmm. get the song arranged. And I find it very hard work and it's only when you play it live to somebody and it seems to work that's when you get the reward for it. Yeah, yeah and also a sense of completion too because until you start playing it live, you would, it would be still forming itself. Yeah, yeah, that's right, you know. And Do a you lot collaborate of, at all? No, I'm not good at that, no. No? No, that's one of my weaknesses is, you know, <laughs> networking and collaborating, I, you know. Uh, yeah. I'm not, you know... Uh, I like to just see yeah, her do it myself, I think, you know. I yeah, know. okay. Where do the ideas come from? Oh, I don't know. Uh, um, mostly if I'm just noodling on the guitar and you have, you've come up with a bit of a rhythm or a melody mm. and it's, that creates a mood. So the lyrics, I want the lyrics to create a mood, you know. So you think of things, various things that you might have thought I should write a song about this or that. Yeah. Does that fit that sort of... Yeah, it's... um. I find it a bit mysterious, you know, the, the whole thing about writing songs. Almost everything I, you know, I get involved in, like I used to like looking at stars, astronomy and that. So then I started get, get, getting into making telescopes. I make telescope lenses. And when I got into motorbikes, I got into making my own motorbikes and engineering and learning all about the technical stuff. Mm. But with music, it's a bit different. I don't have any desire to delve into the the technical aspect of it. I just like to let it happen, you know what I mean? Kind of like it, more of an art. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You've got some pretty passionate songs. Like there's one uh, in Australia about refugees and you've got some really funny songs like Grand Junction Road, which I reckon's a, a corker. Yeah. But the, there's a kind of a voice you've got. Do you hear that voice? Like, it, do you know what I mean? Like there's a style and there's a... Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Um yeah, I like to. I don't. I like to write a story, a song with a story to it. I don't. I find it very hard to write a song with lyrics that just fit in. You know. Mm. Um, so I like doing story stuff. So. The one in the song in Australia, the story. I'm pretty sure I've got this right. It's about like a refugee, a dude coming from Afghanistan yeah. on a boat. Like he's the only one in the family and the family's now destitute because they've sold everything to get him yeah, out here. Yeah. And he gets here and he's locked up in a... Yeah. It's a pretty interesting take on the whole. Yeah, well, I, it came from, I met him. Um, he was a friend of a friend. Uh, one of my friends used to work in the refugee uh, thing and he knew her and it was just a party and he told me the story, you know. He, he was quite uh, interested in telling me about his adventures getting yeah. to... Uh, to Australia, you know, going across the mountains and all yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't want to talk about being in Baxter detention for, you know, all those years. And so, yeah, it's a, pretty much what he told me is what I put in the song, you know. So, mm. How many years was he in Baxter for? Uh, I'm not sure, but it was three or four or five, something like that, yeah. yeah I know. What a, what a yeah. life. That's right. And then and he got out and he became a house painter and a taxi driver and, you know, just fitted in and did, you know. Yeah. It was just a pointless waste of it's, everybody's. It is a completely pointless waste yeah. of, of talent. Yeah. And, and everybody's, like, like the guards and the expenses of putting them there. What the hell, you know, just anyway. 
Yeah. He could have been a terrorist, though. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, travelled all that way just to... Yeah, know. to blow up something. Yeah. Yeah, because it, it happens. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever go to university? No. No, I, uh, I finished year 11 and started year 12 and dropped out after a few months and that's it, yeah. Football. Yeah, I got a job, you know, and then, yeah, but... What did you do? Oh, well, my first job was um, I was a clerk in a pay office at Horwood Bagshaw, but I didn't like being a clerk, so then I, the boss of the foundry there, he said, oh, you're a big, strong lad. When I said, I'm quitting, he said, you're a big, strong lad. Why don't you come and work in the foundry? So I got, went and worked in the foundry at Horwood Bagshaw and got three times the amount of pay because I got adult pay, you know, because I was doing an adult job. And, uh, yeah, I worked in a lot of foundries, a lot of building sites and that. Um, when I came back from Melbourne, I actually lucked onto a job in the tax office. I worked in there for 10 years. How was that? Well, it was good and bad, you know, because I had young kids and that. I had to be earning proper money, uh, uh, but it wasn't, wasn't really um, satisfying, you know, like my creative juices were not catered yeah, <laughs> for. The art. Yeah. Is, you're not going to get it out of uh, tax office. What did you do in the tax office? Oh, well, I worked in the debt collection area for a while, just rang up people and said, oh, oh Mr. Lord, Smith. Oh, yeah. Lord, was that? <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't that bad because I was only on the small, tiny debts bit, you know, and um, and you used to quite often deal with accountants, you know, so it was all pretty official. But uh, after that, I worked in the inquiries, you know, like the people to ring up and need help with filling out their tax form or just asking questions and stuff so do you i've got to ask like do you put your tax return in really quick and it's all underway or you got like five years of time no no i've done on my i do it my tax myself you know yeah. it's um it's a, a business tax it's quite involved yeah. Yeah, but there's so so little money in, involved in it that it's uh, not a problem but yeah, yeah I, I still, oh, but you have to because of the GST. Or yeah, something. that's right. You know, I still do it. So I didn't. I've never thought of going to an accountant. Otherwise, that would make a mockery of my ten years spent in, uh, in the tax office. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I did know. write one song about the tax office. It was called John Kelly's Calendar. It was about a John Kelly was a guy I worked with, and uh, that's one of my favourite songs. That one is but, it really? Yeah, John Kelly's Calendar. Tell us that story. Oh well, John used to come in every morning and. Um, you know, one of those calendars that you have the the date on a certain piece of paper and, you know, you fold it over and, like, it's on a frame. He had three years' worth squ squashed into this one frame and every morning he'd come in and rip a page off and say, 850 to go. Oh, my God. He was God. counting down to really? his retirement. Yeah. You know? <laughs> did he make it? I left before he did, but, oh, yeah, he man. did retire, yeah. And, man uh, alive. I worked in a factory as an engineer way, way back in yeah. the day. And one of the reasons that I was convinced I had to leave that factory was because there was a dude who was on the floor and he was doing the same thing, counting down the days until he retired. But uh, he had a heart attack and died like six uh, weeks no. before he... <laughs> and I thought, what a waste. Yeah. You know, all you can talk about is your retirement day that's looming. I, I, I vowed and declared that I wouldn't be... Yeah, that. yeah. I must admit, though, I've been... Look, I was really disappointed. I found... I always thought 65 was the retirement, but I've just found out, no, it's 66 and a half or something, so even longer to go. Anyway. Yeah. Are you looking forward to retirement? Oh, well, my thing is that, I, I, you know, I'm going to retire, 
but I'll keep making a few guitars, just make a few guitars, mm. you know, and just it'll allow me to tool around and, mm. you know, play for even less money, <laughs> play music for less money, so yeah. get around. Because I work alone anyway, I work at home, so life won't change much, you know. Mm. What was the first album you bought? Get Your Yayas Out by the Rolling Stones. Yeah. I got it off a kid at Nord High. See, the Stones had become uncool amongst the set that I was with, uh, and I really liked it. So, yeah, Get Your Yayas Out was the first one. I got that off uh, Wilson, Maine. In. And then the next one that I bought properly, you know, out of a shop was Hooker and Heat, canned, Hooker and Canned Heat. Uh, mm. was a, that was a double album. And... Um, Al Wilson, the harmonica player in Canned Heat, he was a big influence on my harmonica playing. And yeah, right. Yeah, so really, that was the first one I got out of a shop, but those were, yeah, my first two. Yeah. Mm. What about the first gig you ever went to? I think it was the Rolling Stones at Memorial Drive. It's a pretty good gig to go yeah, to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was it, because, again, I said, oh, you know, I'd say all the kids that, Nord, oh, I've got to ticket the Rolling. What are you going to the Rolling Stones? Or they're all into, you know, I don't know. Yeah, that that was the first gig, I think, because there were quite a few around that time, you know, that I can hardly remember. But yeah, that'll do. <laughs> the first one. Yeah. Mm, I sat outside the Rolling Stones gig, which was uh, what about six years ago now. Oh yeah. And have a listen. At, they were at, at the football oval. Okay. Yeah. And they played like um, midnight. Midnight Rambler. Rambler, and it so cooked. Yeah. Man, that groove. Yeah, yeah. I was like, I've seen the Rolling Stones three times. I was lucky enough in London when I was there in 76. They played mm. at the Earl's Court Stadium. Played, and then again, they played at West Lakes. This is, and Cruel Sea was the opening band for them. Is that right? This would have been in. 2000, before 2000, I think. Yeah, Krilsey hasn't been around for a long time, no, eh? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, three times, Stones. Yeah, yeah. What's the best gig you've ever seen? It's a hard question. One that pops into my mind, Graham Parker and the Rumour at the Apollo Stadium. That was good. You know, that was a really good concert. But, yeah, it's it's. I've seen so many that a, a lot of them, you know, a lot mm. of the live bands I saw when I was, when we were touring and that were great and... But I can't hardly remember them. Yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. Uh, and what about you guys? Like in the bodges, what was your ambition? What were you hoping to achieve? Oh, we didn't have an ambition. It was like um, I use this um, analogy in my book. Uh, you know, in Japan where they'd go to the bus station and they'd have people that push you into the train? That's sort of like what happened to us. Right, we're on this train. We just sort of t- landed there. Oh, and then the next thing you know, we're, oh, you get a worksheet for all the gigs for the next fortnight everywhere, and we just did it and did it. I suppose we just wanted to play in bigger places and get more money and um, become more famous. But there was no plan, because looking back at it now, what we should have done was taken a bit of time off from all that touring mm-hmm. and made some more records, you know, got radio airplay. We didn't have any radio airplay, and that was mm-hmm. crucial, you know, really at the time and still is. What would you recommend for somebody who's wanting to do that sort of thing, play rock and roll? Oh, well, you just, you have to enjoy it, you know. And um, one thing I have noticed in all the people I've met that have been successful, you know, really made it, they're absolutely driven, right? Get out of my way. They might be nice people and, you know, 
but they've got one aim in mind. They're going to, like I'll say to somebody, oh, yeah, we played at the, uh, the Governor Highmarsh, for instance, played there the other way, not a bad job. And other people will say, oh, yeah, it's a good place, yeah. But the driven person will say, who books the gigs there? How much do they pay? You yeah, know, right. like, it, they're on, on the go all the time. And even Paul Kelly, who um, seems like a nice, modest fellow, you know, he was like, you know, get out of driven. And I found that everybody that I know that has made it has been like that or they've got somebody doing it for them. You know, somebody like that, don't yeah, they? Yeah, the management, you know. They'd have to go along with it, though. Yeah, yeah. Because they, yeah. the pressure from those sorts of driven people would be pretty intense. Yeah, yeah well, that's right. That's the, that, that's the other thing I've noticed. They can, these people with somebody working for them, they can be really nice guys because they know mm. their, their manager or their, you know, the manager's is, got is the doing the stuff. Back. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. How did you get involved in at that level like that in the first place because there'd be people who just couldn't even get on a, a train you know what i'm yeah, saying yeah oh right place at the right time we um a friend a fellow um called ian mcdonald there was a band called the fabulaires and they, they were a melbourne band a great band and they were in adelaide and ian mcdonald and his co the guy that used to be the sound man for their band, Blair Burt, they managed the Fabulaires and they were going to form a management company and they heard about the bodgies when we are there in Adelaide, so they came and saw us and he said, well, I can organise you some gigs in Melbourne. You want to come over? Yeah, great. So, and he had an agent called John Sinclair Nucleus Agency and they were really big, big agent, you know, in Melbourne. So Ian said to John uh, Sinclair, you know, these are the bodgies, book some gigs so we went over to Melbourne thinking oh you know he said we've got two weeks work for you so we thought we'd play maybe Friday Saturday <laughs> and then you hang around and then play the next Friday Saturday but no we started on Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday Monday you know we did fifth uh 16 gigs in 14 days in that first trip you know mm. and we thought wow like it was unbelievable for us to be playing that much because we really liked it and, uh, yeah, then Ian said, look, to Ian, you want to be our manager? And, you know, we sign up and, yeah. So we, were, we had somebody doing it for us, you know, getting all, mm. doing all the work. All we do, had to do was turn up and take no money because <laughs> it was all going into the, the truck. We had, well, yeah. we had a truck, a car, two roadies, a management and a manager and an agent, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's sliced a lot of ways, isn't it? Yeah, and PA, we had to have a big PA. Those days, you know, they had massive PAs, you know, so public address systems for the... Uh, mm. yeah. So, yeah, it was the right place at the right time. That's how we got into it. How did it... Or how was it when you broke up? Because you're with your brothers and I could imagine... No, I mean, I, the stories of Creedence, Clearwater Revival, yeah. I still don't think they talked to each other after all those years. And No. Well, ours wasn't like that so much. We didn't... We just got worn out, we, you know, we thought... This is going nowhere. You know, we're flogging ourselves to death, earning no money, going nowhere. So we just can't, like a mutual agreement, let, let's get out of this, you know. And Brian, he was only 18, I think, when we split. He was really young, you know. And so he went back to live in Adelaide. Jeff went to live in Sydney, you know. So we all had other plans. Mm. I stayed in Melbourne. But, uh, yeah, we didn't split up because we didn't want to, you know, we got 
uh, we didn't want to play with each other or we got, fell out, you know, personality-wise. It was just that we realised we were worn out. Uh, it wasn't turning out well. You know, we, were, we had plenty of gigs. Still, we could still work five nights a week, but it just wasn't doing and you know no, we weren't going hard anywhere. work for yeah, not for much, much reward yeah and always night work too which yeah, means that you've right. got no social life that's right you couldn't work in the day you know yeah yeah so and then we did like the touring that would always you'd have to go away from home for mm. two two weeks it's always good on the relationships especially <laughs> when you've got kids yeah yeah well i didn't have kids at the time but uh yeah no yeah. I, what did you imagine yourself uh, doing when you were a kid? <laughs> yeah, that's a hard question. I remember, like, I used to like watching, looking at stars and the moon and that, and I started reading about how it worked, and I said to Dad, I want to be an astronomer. <laughs> and he said, oh, you'll have to go to university for that. And that was like, what? What's university? Uh, you know, nobody in my family, or I, I didn't know anybody that had ever been to university. And almost the identical thing happened. I used to, I got into the um, the pyramids and Egypt, mm. Egyptian history and all that, the pharaohs. I said, oh, I want to be an uh, archaeologist. Oh, you'll have to go to university for that. So I never had a plan. No. When I left school, and I just didn't have a clue what I was going to do. So I just got the, a job that was offered and just sort of stuffed around like that for ages it's kind of um lucky in a way isn't it because nowadays kids would god if you you could even get a job oh yeah no that's right i could i say you know compared to today it's i was so we were so lucky because i could have got any job there weren't there weren't very good jobs but they were all paid you know like like at french like i said i started at this pay a pay clerk at an office and then got a job in the foundry and lots of jobs on building sites. You know, they're always easy to get, you know, and uh, there was a bit of... I remember in 1975 there were some problems with getting jobs for a while. Mm. And so they were, had this... Um, some sort of scheme you went on, a, you know, like a government-paid scheme. It's called the dole. Yeah, that's right. But uh, we actually had to build some walls but there were so many of us we stand around with a shovel oh, really? <laughs> you know there was only enough room for two blokes to get into the job do the mm. work so we would stand around but yeah compared to now you know kids they got a if they study they've got a big hex debt you know to mm. uh and it'll be part-time a casual you know it's, yeah there's no there's no security at all no security like both my sons are in that boat like jake until recently was doing night shifted on the run and teaching music in the day, you know, and Eddie's a casual worker at um, after-school care and so forth, you know, like they just ring him up at 7 o'clock in the morning, say, you work today? Oh, all right, yeah. You know, no planning, you know. It's, and it's pretty normal, that sort of thing, you know. So, yeah, it was, it was a good time to sort of be starting out and working when I did. Yeah. It's, those days are gone. Yeah. Mm. I know it's um, but makes you wonder about what would happen after this COVID crisis. You know, there's talk about all these people being paid poorly and casualised and all that, and there's sympathy for them. But whether it will mean change, you know, or not, I don't think so. I think change is going to come, and it's going to come from all sorts of directions. We can't even really 
conceive of at the moment. No, no. Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure you're right because this is an unforeseen. Yeah, but there's all sorts of things on the horizon too. We you, AI is imminent if it's not here already, and that's not necessarily something that's conscious, but something that's an intelligence. And yeah. uh, all, lots of jobs aren't. They're going to be cheaper to be done by some machine. Yeah, yeah. Your accountant, for instance. <laughs> your tax right. office. That's right. I could just feed the... Well, that's bit what I do. Just feed the figures in and out comes the thing. Out it comes. Yeah. So what do your kids hope to be, obviously, if they're... Well, that's a good question. Eddie is right into acting. He does a lot of acting and gets some good parts. He had a, a thing lined up in London, you know, before for this yeah, year right. uh, it was just a small part and he was going to do touring you know just yep. travel around uh, he does acting so he would like to you know I'm pretty sure he'd like to be a full time actor or, yeah. or musician Jake's brilliant uh, pianist and guitar player he just sort of gets by I don't know what his aim is I'm not sure he has one either you know just doing enough to you know, pay the bill sort of thing. Mm. A bit like me, you know, just, just I don't know, something will, something will happen, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because we were talking just before about, like, um, people that make it, inverted commas, are, like, have this drive and very driven. You don't need necessarily to do that, do you? Well, I don't know. You know, you don't have to, you know, because then you've, you'd probably be more accepting of all the other things around you that come in rather than just get out of my way, I'm going this direction. But, you know, if you want to be really successful at something, I think you have to be mm. quite driven or very lucky. Very lucky, yeah. Just, it, like how you, not justified, but how you, this criteria of success is such a fluid thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, it could be monetary. That's a pretty classic way of yeah, saying... judging success. Judging yeah. success, but it could also be like happiness or yeah because the, the the guy that you think is a millionaire and well he's a success he might be totally miserable you know could be totally miserable and yeah. his relationships are shit and yeah uh, so not to say that people are yeah poor can <laughs> still have the same thing too <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah no it's um i i think in a way you can't tell that until you're approaching my age. You know, you get older and you look back and you think, oh, that was pretty good, you know, I enjoyed, that was a good life or I've done a few good things there or, geez, I've been doing rubbish, I, I should do something I like, you know. I would hope that get you get there and you say, no, I did okay. Mm. That's, yeah, but that, sometimes it takes quite a while to be able to say that, you know, to be able to look at it from a... A distance, you know, to be able to, because mm. uh, you're so caught up in your life and doing mm. this and that, you're not really sure. You might think I'm unhappy or I'm happy, but you don't really get a picture of where it is you're heading or you've been until quite some time later, you know. Yeah, exactly. But that's exactly what you're just talking about now. Like looking back in hindsight, yeah, th those decisions, okay, I made some real dodgy ones made some bad ones, but mostly it came out all right, and that's good. Yeah, well, if it did come out all right, it is good. But, uh, well, you mostly know. it does. Yeah, yeah, I think so, you know. But, 
We're getting into territory here that I'm not sure I, I'm qualified to talk about. So. I think you are because, yeah. like, this is um, this is human characteristics. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll put it: if if I knew what I knew now, uh, that music is very playing music is very important to me, I would have been more <laughs> unpleasant, more driven. You know what I mean? More well, just concentrating because I always thought, you know, I didn't want to. Uh, get in anybody's face or, you know, just didn't want to push myself forward, you know, because that's the way I was brought up. But knowing that you need to do that, I, I reckon you could... The way to do it would be to take your personal hat off and put a manager's hat on and say, how would yeah, I manage yeah. Don? You know, like, yeah, right. we need to get Don and then ring up to, to get gigs yeah. from a third-party perspective, you know yeah, what I mean, rather yeah, than be a... A human contact. Yeah, this is some unit working for you. You know what I mean? That would be mm. make things a bit. That's easier. a pretty good little psychological tool, isn't it? I like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I've thought of. I try and get in when I have to do a lot of ringing around and getting gigs, which is the the job that all musicians hate most is yeah, you know, booking gigs. Yeah. And the people that book the gigs hate it too. Uh, you know, I try and get into that third party mode, you know. Oh, yeah, this, uh, I'm great, you know, I play a lot. I'll entertain the crowd, blah, 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 you know. And rather than they say, um, well, you know, what sort of show do you do? And you go, oh, you know, I play a bit of music, you know. Mm. You know, do most of my own songs and uh, blah, you know. <laughs> you can hear the enthusiasm waning on the end yeah. of the line, you know. Yeah, send us in your, your CD yeah. and we'll, we'll look at it. Yeah, we'll yeah. throw it in the bin. That's right. Yeah. yeah, fair enough. Tell us about uh, why you were brave to stand next to Shake and Stevens at a urinal. Oh, well, <laughs> we were actually doing shake supports for Jake, Shake and Stevens' tour, you know, we did in Melbourne, Sydney and Canberra. So we'd play first. And I just went some hall in Melbourne. We, I was looking for the dunny and I went in there and Shake and Stevens was there. And I, you know, just made a joke because he might be spraying his urine around, you know, yeah, shaking. That's, he might. It's not very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's a... What's he doing nowadays? I don't know. He was a nice enough fellow, though. Yeah, he was quite, you know, friendly. Yeah, yeah. Quite, oh, what I found was, you know, when we did all those gigs, like we toured with Joe Cocker and we didn't tour with him. We just opened gigs for him and all that. You never, ever get to meet anybody above the lower-level roadies and all that on those tours, you know. They got their own rooms and you're not allowed in there. And yeah, blah, right. Blah. Yeah. But, yeah, I did meet Shake and Stevens. That was all right. I saw Joe Cocker at Woodstock played that Beatles song cover that he did. And, man, that was, it's such an awesome show that he put on. Where, where was that? At Woodstock in 1969. You were there? No. Oh, sorry. Uh, the film, yeah. No, not the film, yeah. yeah. It was, I watched it on YouTube just the other day. Yeah, okay, yeah. And... Um, Crimea River, was it? Little help from my friends. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah. Just such an awesome set of music. Yeah. Like, killer. Yeah, no, we got to play. We did Adelaide, Melbourne, Sydney. A couple in Melbourne and a couple in Sydney. With, mm. you know, open for him, yeah. And you didn't meet him? No, no, no. We weren't allowed anywhere near the um, their change room or the smorgasbord, you know. They, <laughs> I remember Brian was starving. He hadn't had tea. He said, bugger this, I'm going in there. And he went into the, the big room with this huge smorgasbord and that. 
and somebody chased him out and he just sort of hurried up to our little dunny that we were changing in and it turned out it was the guitarist, you know, the American mm. session guitarist for Joe Cocker sort of chased him out and came in and he was going to tell Brian off for going in there and then he looked around at our... Yeah. And he sort of looked and then he just pissed off, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. You saw how poorly we were uh, doing it. Yeah, so it was pathetic the way they used to carry on. Oh, well. What about Willie Nelson? Oh, yeah, well, when we went to Texas, um, we were doing some gigs there and the people that organised, the, they took us out to uh, this golf course that Willie uh, Nelson owned and there was a, a building there that sold golf stuff and the back of it was a big studio, you know, recording studio and uh, uh, so he was there a lot and um, I was playing, we were playing golf and didn't know anything about golf because it was... <laughs> And I lost... Does Willie know anything about golf? Well, apparently, yeah, he, he owned the golf course, you know. He'd, so. he'd want to know something, yeah. wouldn't he? And we... Um, I lost my last golf ball in the bush somewhere, so I was over there looking for it, and then around the corner, this guy in a golf buggy screamed around, going really fast, and he nearly ran me over. And then as he was riding past, he says, watch out there, young fella! And it was <laughs> Willie Nelson with his red pigtails and that. So. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, I sort of had to make something out of that. So I said yeah. he nearly killed me. Yeah. Everybody, my sons wished that he had because it could have sold so many CDs with that story, you know, like everybody's going to buy Don's CD and they would have been rich. <laughs> Killed they by wouldn't have Nelson. their dad, though. No, I, mean, right. I think that would be a shame. You've released 15 albums? Yeah. That's a hell of a lot of music. Yeah. Have you got a favourite? Um, sort of, but not really, no. I like, there was one called Waiting, uh, an album called Waiting, which really got me started on the songwriting. You know, I put a lot of effort into that, you know, and had a lot of ideas, and that was... Uh, you know, not that long ago, 2007-something. I'd released a few before then, but I think that's when my songwriting came good. Mm. And uh, and I got all the, you know, and I sold it. I usually sell enough, you know, my my way of working is once I've sold enough of the CDs to cover the costs involved, then I'll start making the next one. Yeah, okay. So I always get my money back or make a little bit of a profit on it. Mm. But the latest one I got is... Um, it's a big job. It's called 4040, which is 40 songs for 40 years. So I've been playing for 40, and I'm making a double CD of uh, older stuff and some stuff I haven't released and, you know, that sort of thing. So that's taking so much energy. It might be the last one I do for a while, you know. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it'll come out soon. Do you record here? Well, I actually, we did. Uh, my son, Jake, has got a little... Zoom mic and a few things, you know, like mm. equipment. So we did a few songs here, just solo ones, you know. But no, normally if it's a band, we we'll go into a studio. Uh, we have done a couple solo songs, you know, re- recorded in the bathroom because it's got a bit of echo. Here, <laughs> yeah, you cover one of your records. No, actually, it's on um, on the songs on YouTube. It's um, Recorded with the bathroom sound or something. Oh yeah, James Black did the yeah the guy from Monday Rock. Yeah, yeah. he recorded it in when we were in Sydney. I mean in Melbourne. Yeah, we we did this the vocals in Brian and Jeff's bathroom in St Kilda, Ackland Street, and we recorded the the backing at this famous share house called Marama in East St Kilda, which has been the home of Adelaide musicians that have come you know for years, and uh, it'd be worth a story, Marama. You know, there's so many people that have lived there mm. 
But we were recording the uh, the backing there in the lounge room and Nigel, the bass player, didn't tell the, his housemates that we were going to record on a Sunday morning. And Paul Kelly's sister, Mary Jo, was living there at the time and I've never heard anything like it. She got out of bed and started yelling at us, you know. <laughs> it's like crazy, you know. Yeah, it was some really famous... I don't, it's obviously not now, but yeah, the real estate is too expensive to have a share house around there it now. It would be, yeah. Um, yeah, a bit hellish. What brings you most joy when you get in front of people playing music? Oh, I just see when you see the faces of people that are involved in it, you know, they get in, involved in the music, you know, you see they're liking it and... Uh, I like actually doing it, performing it. It's like a physical thing, you know, like, um, you know, some people meditate or do mindfulness. And I really think playing in front of people is, is a similar thing, you know, similar mental, physical type thing. Uh, but that's a good question. What's, what do I most enjoy? I, I realised recently that I do enjoy it. <laughs> um, do you get nervous? Yeah, yeah. Not nervous as in... I get really, I sort of feel a bit headachey and grumpy. And not, we, I remember in the Bodgies for a while we had a, a bass player called Nigel Sweeting. He used to get nervous and he would get really talkative and jumpy and, ah! and I would get really grumpy and sour, you know, and uh, it was just a bad mix <laughs> prior to the gig. But, um, I get a bit nervous, you know, like, especially at gigs that I've not played at before. Mm. So I don't know what what's going to happen, you know, don't know what it's like or what's going to happen. But usually the nerves are gone as soon as you start, you know. Yeah. Or even as soon as I get there, you know. Yeah, yeah. But building up to it, you know, in the hour, you know, the morning, you get a bit, some, quite often drive into a gig, I think, why do I bother with this stuff for, you know, why am I doing this, you know. But as soon as I get there, it's all right, you know. Mm. It's, uh, and you're still booking them for yourself too, hey. I know where you're coming from. It's a kind of, I guess it's a compulsion or something like that. At the same time, there'd be part of you that'd be going, oh, I could just be home watching television. Yeah, that's something. right. I quite often think that, oh, I'd rather watch the footy. You know, but that's only on the, like for the days before the gig. Mm. I'm always looking forward to it. I look forward to it, you know, or next week I've got this big gig, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Mm. But actually, just a few hours before, I get, oh, why would I bother, you know, like, watch the footy stay home you know yeah and then the next day i find you know even if i've done a moderately successful gig that's when i feel most relaxed most um yeah, right. you know don't need to do anything just do my da daily duties and i feel really quite satisfied you know that does sound pretty reminiscent of mindfulness or something like yeah, that doesn't yeah, it it is it's some you know whatever yeah something you need to do yeah it's good for my mental yeah, yeah. Have you got chops, do you reckon? Like, have you got... Yeah, like, hmm, I don't know. Like, you probably got a set. Do you have a set? Or do you just go in there and say, I'm just going to play? Oh, no, I always write out the, um, the song lists. Yeah. Have you ever done it like that? Like, just wing it? No, because I can't remember... If I don't have the songs written down, I can't remember any of them. Yeah. Like, what am I going to play now? Oh, I can't... You know, and I won't be able to think of it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's a learn problem too because um what i found in the early days is if i couldn't remember the lyrics to songs i would write down it's usually one verse or one line in a verse that i can't remember so i'd write it down and every time i'd get to that line or verse i'd be looking for my bit of paper mm. but then i realized if i 
bit of self-discipline and learnt that verse properly, you know, tra- practice and practice it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then I, I could do it, you know. But if how you write you- write it down, you're always relying on the written down. Yeah. How much do you practice? Like, say you've got a gig next week or three or four weeks. Would you practice every day or no? Because normally I will play every week. See, so I'd be yeah. playing. I would need to practice, you know, and the songs I've had for years. Uh, but, yeah, recently, because there's been so few gigs, I have been practising and I find that my hands are like lumps of old meat, you know. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I'm, I've got a gig, um, what's it, next Saturday. So I'll, I'll be doing actually practising for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where's the gig? Uh, it's called Cafe Komodo on Prospect Road. It's a, it's a sort of little coffee shop come bar you know it's quite a good place mm. i haven't played there solo before so luckily i don't have to practice normally because i play so often but yeah and by the time if i've got a new song by the time i've played it so many times you know writing it and learning it I, it's pretty much ingrained already yeah you know, right so. it's for somebody who doesn't sing songs i can't even conceive of all the words that you've got in your head Song-wise, yeah. Well, if you ask me uh, to um, quote the words to you, you know, mm. without the guitar or anything, I probably can't. It's a com- combination of when your hand's doing this, you're mm. singing that. You know, when you're doing mm. that chord, you're you're singing this. You know, like it's a, mm. a connection of all different things. Mm. Like um, we were just at a, a barbecue the other day, and they better got their guitars out, and they were saying, "I didn't have my guitar," and they said, "Don't sing this song." you know, one of mine that I'd written. And because I wasn't playing the guitar, I couldn't think of the words. And I kept singing the same verse over and over because it just wasn't what I was used to, you know. Yeah, yeah. So it's a strange way the mind works, you know. Yeah. And also playing guitar and singing is, all, is a challenge in and of itself, but it sounds like that's... Uh... Yeah, yeah, it's just natural, you know, yeah. to, for me anyway, to, yeah. to do my own songs anyway. It's... To, to sing a cover of a song, that, that takes quite a bit of work, you know, practice. Mm. How's your ear? Have you got a good ear? Uh, how do you mean? It, uh, uh, have you got relative pitch? Uh, yeah. uh, I've never had any trouble, put it that way. You know, I can mm. work out what chords some, somebody's playing on a song, you know. And mm. You can't hear that and you go, oh, that's a C sharp. Oh, no, 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 I can't yeah. do that. Although... Speaking of that, my first band, that Pasopana Supernostra and the Bubonic Plague, we had a bloke, turned out to, later on became my brother-in-law, Peter Second. He played what we called the drain, which was a, a piece of drain pipe with a curve on the end, and he had a trombone mouthpiece, and he would sort of fart into it, and he had perfect pitch. And you know, like when we heard a, a, a boat blow its whistle, we said, oh, well, that's E-flat. Or, you know, yeah. And we used to tune up to the drain, say, Greg Baker would say, give us an E, and he'd go... That was an E, you know, and you could... Oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah. We can't learn perfect pitch, unfortunately. No, it's there, I think, or not. Are you getting better as a player and a singer and a songwriter? Uh, I, I think I've got better at doing what I'm better at, if you know what I mean. I've eliminated the things that I do that aren't very good, you know. I, I've I've concentrated on my guitar style. I think I've got a good, strong sense of rhythm rather than mm. technical picking and that. Mm. So I concentrate on that rather than... A blistering, shredded yeah, solo. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So 
I don't try and do that because it'll end in, you know, in tears. <laughs> in tears. Um, <laughs> I think there's a, a good argument to say that people should stop shredding and get a bit of rhythm and song in them. Yeah, well, especially if you're playing by yourself. <laughs> well, I don't care how you're yeah. playing, but mm. I think songs are what people listen to. Oh, yeah. Like, nothing drives me crazier than so-called blues bands where it is just one big long guitar solo you know and uh, then the bloke will sing a verse and then he'll start another solo and oh jeez it's pretty boring isn't yeah. it so don't do it out there no uh, what are the challenges coming up for you you've got a your album your 40 songs for 40 years yeah yeah that's probably the biggest challenge because I want to I want to try and well it was the idea was because uh, I was going to travel interstate more, so then I would have this. Because what happens after the gig, you know, a lot of people want to buy a CD, mm. and they'll say, you know, is that that song on this album? I say, no, no, it's on that album. What about song B? No, that's on the other album. And so they get all confused and probably might not even buy one at all, you know. So I thought that if I make this double thing with a lot of the good ones on, and there's a lot of new stuff too. Uh, I can just say, yeah, buy this, you know. So I just wanted to have one album that really summed up my stuff for when I went over to um, Melbourne and Sydney and stuff. And uh, that was going to be my challenge, you know, is to try and just make it a bit better interstate. Uh, but um, that's sort of all been put on hold for the moment. Yeah, it's on hold. It'll come back. Yeah, I think so, as long as I... Just don't go to Melbourne for the next couple of months. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. yeah. What about hobbies? Hobbies. Yeah. Sport, maybe. Oh no, I just watch a bit of footy. Um, walk the dog a lot, you know, yeah. at least an hour a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, all my hobbies have turned into jobs soon because uh, making guitars was a hobby, you know. So, what else do I like doing? Oh, good question. Yeah. Photography. No, 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 no good at photography. That's right. I'm always amazed at how people can take a photo and make it look so good of something I see every day. And uh, yeah. I know. I feel the same. Yeah. That's a skill I just don't Yeah, they've got an eye, eye for that. I don't know how they do it. Yeah. If you had a superpower, what would it be? Superpower? Oh, I would, in my present mood, I would um, change the economic structure of the world. Would you yes. really? Yes. Tell, I would... I would my first blow would be to just shut down all the pokies. Would you? Yep. Just get rid of them because they just suck money out of the people that can afford it least and do nothing, you know. Mm. There's no productivity no in the No productivity. Mm. No, um, nothing good comes out of them, you know. And then I would try and change the wealth distribution between the very rich and the very poor. I would try and even it out. That would be my... Would you take from the rich and start doling it out or we just sort of do more structural changes so that over time immediately i would take from the rich and dole it out but then i would introduce structural change so that uh, people could get enough money to make them happy but not be so super wealthy that they don't know how much you know that Mm. all this money is well what do they need it for you know Mm. yeah that's you know i think i'd do that but first of all i make sure myself and my family were well set up you know (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's where it all starts, isn't it? You know, the desire for... Mm, for most people, you just want to be sufficient, you know? Yeah. Those yeah. other people that are really driven 
and not so much in a musical sense, but in a in a money making yeah. sense. I'm pretty sure that if you, if I was uh, to do that thing again, the just get out of my way, that focused and determined. I say I want to be a millionaire. I'm pretty sure almost anybody could do it. You know, if that oh, was I reckon all you they probably could. All yeah. they wanted to do was earn, earn money, and they would um, do it however they could get it. You could, but what's the point? You know, you've got to live life. This is the this is the crux of it, isn't it? It's like you can go and do that for the person that doesn't want to do that. There's no meaning or fulfilment in it. No, that's right. Just to be able to look at your bank balance and say, "Well, two billion. You know, what are you going to do with that?" You know. You could go anywhere in the world. Well, you could, but, you know, you can pretty much go anywhere in the world on a couple of thousand, you know, nowadays, anyway. Yeah. Well, you could, can't go anywhere at the moment. No, no. So have you got a um, – don't talk about politics normally, but have you got a political position? Uh, well, I was brought up – my dad was a shop steward, you know, in mm-hmm. fact, so he was a union man and I always just joined the unions when Did I was you? in the jobs. You know, over the years, I've become disillusioned with the Labor Party, you know, to an extent where, I, oh, of course, I never vote Liberal. I'm not that sort of side. I, you know, I, I still associate with the working people and think that, you know, people should get be able to live comfortably if they've got a job, you know, mm. working. Nah, you know, I just, when I vote now, I look at the card and try and find out who the more, um, you know, you have to call me a left-leaning person, you know, and so I might vote greens or something and give the preferences down you know mm. labor would get it before liberal and that, that sort of thing you know but mm. there's not general any party one party that i feel fully connected with no no and the ideologies of mm. it's hard to even comprehend some of the yeah so you know with this covid thing it's pretty clear that some of the structural failings in our economic system and our political system won't survive now is a kind of good time to ask for change but i don't think anyone can really point to a different um way of dealing with things except for the capitalist one no that's right because you have to come out with a complete restructure perhaps like it it was really getting me like you hear the the uh the health minister is it greg hunt i think it was he was saying Oh, you know, I won't hear a bad word against these heroes. He was talking about the nurses and the people in the health and all that. I went, they're, they're doing a great job. And I thought to myself, well, why don't they pay them properly then? You know, they're the one of the, amongst the lowest paid and mm. hardworking people and we rely on them. That sort of thing might be coming to the fore at the moment. But then who's going to introduce the structural change that would bring about, you know, mm. better wages and conditions for low paid workers and young people, you know? Casual. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Oh, I don't know either. Yeah. It's, it's a question that minds bigger than mine are going to have to grapple with. And I th- yeah. it'll be interesting. It, it's interesting times. Yep. It could go really badly, you know, like the super wealthy could be buying, buying up all these assets that are damaged and going cheap. And so they become even more wealthy. The government might say, now is not the time to increase your wages. We're trying to get the, you know the economy going again and so the poorer will get poorer so it could go that way but there could be some realization that people you know casual workers and low paid have got to be treated better you know Mm. who knows yeah we will see yeah when the apocalypse comes are you going to have any useful skills (laughs) 
I don't know how to answer that. The apocalypse. Oh, well, I can cook. <laughs> what's your, tell us a recipe. What's your favourite Oh, what's my favourite recipe? I don't know. Um, I don't I cook pretty basic, you know, is it? but um, I've just been getting into making apple and pear pies, you know, making the pastry and everything. Yeah, Good so, idea. Yeah. Have you got an apple tree and a pear tree? No, no. I've got apricots. My favourite thing is um, stewed apricots. Uh-huh. But I was in Melbourne, was it last year, when they had that 47-degree day here and the, apple tr- the apricot tree died. So I just planted another one now, but it will be a few years before I get apricots. Yeah. Everything died that day. Yeah, because I wasn't. I, I, I made sure I watered everything really strongly before I went away, but obviously nowhere near enough. Yeah. No, everything was yeah. just frazzled. Yeah. All my garden went. Yeah. <laughs> you couldn't put a, you couldn't put water on fast enough. No, no, completely bananas. How useful is music to our society? Oh. Well, the, the mere fact that there's so much of it around must mean that it is, you know, incredibly useful. And um, I, like I was saying before, I think it's really good for my physical and mental well-being to play music. And I think just even, you know, singing at school and all those sort of things, learning to play an instrument. And it, it can be uplifting. It's a mood changer, you know, mm. unifying. People, you know, big concert, having a great time, people sort of feel together, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's hard for me to step back and overall say it, but I, I think, uh, you know, it would be a drastic and awful change if there was no music, you know. Yeah, it would be a pretty dull place. I mate. mean, yeah, just imagine driving around and you can't put any music, you know, no music on your car radio or on the radio mm. at home. Or I think it's essential for human... You know, all cultures have got their own form of music, you know. Mm. And dance and yeah. art. Yeah. Even birds sing, you know, a lot of them, you know, just so. What's the best decision you ever made? Oh, jeez. Uh, what's the best decision? <laughs> Probably to quit the tax office. <laughs> <laughs> was that a nerve-wracking decision? No, 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 it just became yeah, pretty obvious, you know. Obvious, yeah. I just started building guitars, you know, and I didn't have a business going at all, but... I thought, well, I could sell a few, you know, and then I'll get another job, different one, but probably that, you know, because it was a well-paid job and it wasn't too onerous, and so I could have lived off that for, you know, got a good bunch of superannuation and blah, blah, blah. I reckon... I uh, mean, I, I, won't, I won't say that is, that's my best ever decision, but it's the only one I could think of at the moment. That's all right. Because <laughs> the next question is, what's the hardest decision you ever made? Oh... I don't know if I want to talk about that. No, that's fine. That's right. You don't have to get personal. No. But often the best and the hardest are kind of like hand in hand. Sometimes. Yes, yeah. Well, like, you know, I mean. Have you ever made a bad decision? <sighs> yes, I must have. I mean, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of it. Think of them. I was driving near um, Ayers Rock and I took a wrong turn. <laughs> got lost for bloody hours, you know, but out in the sticks. But uh, we got back again, so. I thought you were going to say you crashed into the rock. No, no, no. Just, just got lost for a while. I don't know. I should have thought about that, but... Uh, you know, bad decisions and hard decisions and good decisions, they all kind of merge into one, don't they? They're yeah, sort of... because they have ramifications that might not necessarily be, you know, bad. You know, you think, I shouldn't have done that, but then you're on a different path then and 
Off you go. And there's goodness that comes from it yeah. too. And the good decisions you think you make can sort of turn sour or something too. It's very difficult to actually have quality statements when it comes to these yeah. sorts of things. A lot of – I just find my life is a lot of – it's not been run by decisions at all. It just happens sort of like – subconsciously almost you know you do this and you do that and go this way and that way and would you recommend that to your kids say or would you sort of oh, i don't know i i don't think i would be qualified as a guru on how to run your life you know no but, but we we have been talking about driven yeah i think uh, you know if my kids said you know what should i do i said well go with the flow what do you want to do you know what do you feel like doing how do you and the the, that's a really hard question to answer yeah, for a lot of people, right. isn't it? Yeah, because if you'd have said that to me when I was young, I, you know, I don't know. You know. Yeah. So, uh, if you could go back and give yourself some advice as a young person, what would it be? And do you reckon you'd listen? Uh, I think we talked about this before. I would. Yeah, we did. I would have tried and I would have tried to work out what I wanted to do. Like, just have, we've just said we can't do that, <laughs> but. Um, and then gone for it a bit harder, you know what I mean? Mm. So I should have been more self-aware, you know? I think uh, spend a bit of time working out what's going on in my own head, what's, what's going on in your own head, sort of your, what you like in that, rather than... I think that's something, you know? I've always said, well, why would I bother wasting my time thinking about all that shit, you know? Just, <laughs> just make lunch or fix this bolt or, you know, whatever, you know? But I think that would be important is to work out, you know, a, a set of principles or uh, aims, you know, some sort of general rough direction mm. rather than just completely, absolutely take it as it comes. You've got to take life as it comes, but there could be a, mm. an argument for having some overall vision, you know. Mm. I think there's pros and cons with both of those ideas. You kind of do need both. Yeah, yeah, I think so, because mm. it could end up, yeah. How can people get in touch with you and hear your music? Oh, well, if they, uh, on the music side of things, uh, they could keep their eye out for a gig for Don Morrison or Don Morrison's Raging Thirst. Uh, I'm on Bandcamp, all my stuff's up Bandcamp. Until a few days ago, everything i done was on Spotify too, but I had a bit of a falling out with the mob that did it. So they've, I made them take it down. Now I've got to gradually put it back on again. Oh, right. I can't quite conceive of how that... Oh, you know. no. Well, I signed a, con- a record contract, right? And these mm. people, they, they dealt in online and streaming. And so they, they got everything I, I owned, I'd made on Spotify. We, I had some of it already, but they put it all up and... Um, but it didn't work out well, and so we parted ways, and so they've taken it down. So now I have to put it You've back got up to again. Put it back up again. But yeah, Bandcamp's all up on Bandcamp, and that's a better site for musicians too. You know, yeah, yeah. play that. You're more likely to get some sort of income generation from exactly. something like Bandcamp yeah. than Spotify, which is oh yeah, point oh oh four of a cent per play. You know, <laughs> yeah, you need something like a hundred thousand listens to get ten yeah. bucks. Or I know. Something. The the good part about Spotify though is. You can be heard all over the world, and and when I, I can look at the figures of who's listening, what, and you know, there's yeah, okay. a hotspot in Sweden there, and I can imagine, you know, a spa full of all these beautiful naked girls listening to my songs, you know, <laughs> and um, it's a beautiful thing. 
because otherwise, I, you know, would never have got heard. You know, they were playing in Mexico even. I've seen this, playing some of the stuff and mm. all over the place. So that's good, you know, you get it out there, but it's not. if you're looking to get money out of it, forget it, you know. Mm. I get about 40 bucks every three months from Spotify, you know. Yeah, okay, so, well, that's not too bad. No, but it's thousands of plays, you know what I mean? There's yeah. Like, so I, I'm not too fast. I'll leave it off Spotify for a while and hopefully, because when they go to Bandcamp, you can only listen to it once or twice, then you've got to buy it, you know what I mean? So, mm. And I get most of the, most of the money. So where else did they, yeah, I'm online, go to the website, www.donmo.com. There's a lot about my guitars on there and a lot about the music. And the book. And the book, yeah, my 40 years at the dag end of the Australian music industry. <laughs> this could be big, it's called. So, um, yeah, they start there anyway, start at those places. Have we left anything out? Something like you'd like to add? Oh, boy, I've been talking for ages. Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> Don, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure.